Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this midsummer day in Washington, D.C., where, unlike the White House with Dr. Anthony Fauci, we promise to never create an opposition research file on one of our guests, not even Adam Waller. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you as always from my coronavirus bunker in D.C. And today I am thrilled to be rejoined by the aforementioned Adam Walner, McClatchy, D.C.'s politics editor and someone who, if I'm not mistaken, is coming to us from slightly fancier digs than usual. Adam, welcome. That's true. Well, first, I, I want to say that I, I do not agree to, to that promise that you outlined at the top, because I think I could, could write up a pretty lengthy file on, on both of you. So I don't want to take that off the table for anybody who happens to be listening. And yes, new new digs. This is my this will be my first podcast that I have recorded from my my new apartment. Also in Petworth, I literally moved right across the street. I, I couldn't quit this great <laughs> neighborhood in, in Northwest DC. So we'll see. You know, we'll see what, what the what the acoustics are like here. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what it sounds like. Adam Walner is Petworth's number one stan. Um, I think that's I, yeah. I think that's I, right. I, I yeah. believe. And we are overjoyed, of course, to welcome back to the program the man simply known as Murph around our erstwhile D.C. offices, Brian Murphy, the Washington correspondent for McClatchy's North Carolina newspapers. Murph, welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I've already got an opposition research file started on Woolner, so. <laughs> I, man, I should have known. One, one, of, known. one of several well, well bouncing around the D.C. office, actually. <laughs> Coming up, it's debate day here on The Bubble. We're going to argue about whether the Trump campaign's inability to land a punch on the candidate was suddenly calling Teflon Joe is really about Biden's immunity to criticism, or if it's more of a function of the incredible moment that the country finds itself in and the Trump campaign's own disorganization. Spoiler alert, I think it's the former. But first, folks, as you've probably noticed, every single discussion about the 2020 election is apparently obligated to reference the previous presidential race in 2016. That's been especially true lately as Biden's polling surge has brought with it a cascade of caveats about how the polls also showed Hillary Clinton winning over Donald Trump. These are meant to be reminders for journalists and other members of the punditocracy. Don't make the same mistake as last time by downplaying Trump's odds of winning. Biden's lead isn't nearly as solid as it appears. However, even if we keep in mind that none of us can predict the future, it's also important to make sure that we're not fighting the last war. So Adam, let me ask you, as you see it, What's the difference between 2020 and 2016? Or are the two races more similar than we realize? Well, you know, not to you know, really oversimplify things here and state the obvious, but, but the main reason 2020 is so different from 2016 is that Donald Trump is the incumbent president in, in this race. And yet he is basically trying to rerun the same campaign that he did in, in 2016, right? But he can no longer be the sort of anti-establishment challenger figure when you're an incumbent president and you actually have a record from the last four years to run on. And that record that he's trying to defend is overwhelmingly viewed negatively by by the public, right? I mean, he's underwater uh, on his handling with the coronavirus pandemic, with the, you know, even his numbers on the economy are starting to sour, on healthcare, on race relations, basically any topic that is top of mind for, for the American public right now, they are not approving of the way he is handling things. So that's obviously, you know, uh, not, not again, not to state the obvious, a major difference here from four years ago. Another, Joe Biden, you know, he's not Hillary Clinton. He's generally more well-liked. You know, he's winning uh, the majority of voters right now who both dislike him and Trump. That's a big shift from, from 2016 when, when Trump was winning a lot of those, that group of voters between him and Clinton. He doesn't have any sort of kind of big, you know, scandal dogging him. You know, obviously that, that email story, you know, trailed Hillary Clinton throughout the entirety of the race. And uh, obviously is kind of what ended up turning things at the very end there with with James Comey. 
another big difference. You know, Joe Biden is uniting the Democratic Party much, much uh, more quickly and more effectively than Hillary Clinton was was able to in in 2016. So you kind of take all these things together. Right now, you know, the race is shaping up as as a referendum right now on the president's performance, specifically lately his handling of the coronavirus as, as cases are beginning to, to surge once again. You know, these are all issues that have you know affected basically every American's life at this point for the next four months and will continue to through November and beyond. You layer that in with sort of the negative performance reviews on a lot of other issues. You know, Joe Biden being in a, in a much different place than Hillary Clinton was four years ago. That's why he's he's jumped out to, to this big lead in the polls. Now, that's not to say you know that the race isn't going to tighten. You know, I don't think most Democrats think that Joe Biden is going to win Pennsylvania by 13 points or that he's really going to win the popular vote by 15 points. You know, that's what some polls out this week are suggesting. But just kind of comes back to that Trump is trying to run basically the same campaign that as he did in 2016 amid a very different set of circumstances. And right, and even four years ago, that that barely worked for him. So you know. Again, things can change, but right now, basically, no matter what way you slice it, you know, things aren't great for Trump. And, and presidential races usually come down to the fundamentals, and basically everything is pointing in the direction of Joe Biden right now. Murph, any room for disagreement there? Not really. I think the the biggest factor, and Adam hit on it, is that Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Even though he's been in the public eye for decades, he's not been, rightly or wrongly, you know, subject to blistering attacks from Republicans and and even some Democrats that have, you know, Donald Trump had the fortune or misfortune, I guess, of running against one of the few politicians in the country that was as unpopular as he was. And as Adam made mention, the people who disliked both Clinton and Trump tended to go with Trump. We'll we'll take the new guy. We'll, We'll see what the businessman can do. I think Trump is very geared up to run a race against someone as disliked as Hillary Clinton someone that he can easily tag with with crooked and the fact that the news just kept coming out in 2016 indicating that maybe there was something you know nefarious about what Hillary Clinton had done with her emails I, I mean obviously the the hacking situation with the DNC I think conflated all of those email stories together made it seem even even larger than than the actual story was Biden for for his faults and I'm sure we'll get to those later is not as despised as Hillary Clinton was. She's he's not as unlikable as she was running up to that election. So now Trump is going to have to sink or swim sort of on his likability factor. Uh, he, he doesn't have the fact that his opponent is equally unliked by the public. This is based on polls, not not personal opinion. And so I, I think that's really the, the difference. I, I also think uh, one of the things is that Trump has geared up and, and the entire Republican Party had sort of geared up to run this race against Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or someone that could be easily tagged as a, as a socialist. Joe Biden, for, for his faults, you know, among Democrats, I, I don't think any Democrat would say that Joe Biden is a socialist. And, and I'm not sure that the Trump campaign has been able to pivot quite so quickly. If they were running against Elizabeth Warren, I think they had a better blueprint to do that. Let me ask you guys, because I think the public, by and large, if they heard this conversation, their first response would be, OK, Biden is up in the polls now, but so was Hillary. Wasn't she? And and if Hillary was able to lose her lead, can't can't the same happen to Biden or can't the polls also be wrong about Joe Biden? A- Adam, I'm not sure, though, it's that simple. No, it's not. And yeah, I think that that's you know, one of the lessons we need to take away from 2016 is that you can't place all of your, your faith in the polls. But I think it also is worth pointing out that Joe Biden is in a much different position polling wise mm-hmm. at this stage in the race than Hillary Clinton was 
four years ago. He does just have a much larger lead that is well outside the margin of error. You know, there was a, a Quinnipiac poll yesterday that showed Biden up 15 points nationally. Mm-hmm. There was an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that showed him up 11. And, you know, if you look back and, you know, any of the kind of polling average sites that are out there, Real Clear Politics, Fire Theory, you can go back and look at where Clinton and Trump were in the polls in 2016. The race was actually a lot closer than you might remember. You know, Hillary, of course, still in the lead, but in a lot of cases, you know, mid single digits, if not lower single digits. And another key difference is that Joe Biden, you know, in basically all of these national and battleground state polls now is approaching 50 at 50 or over 50, right? So he's getting a majority of voters. Another huge difference from where the polling Mm -hmm. was in 2016, where even when Clinton was up, she was really only in the low or mid 40s. Clearly, there was you know a bigger kind of you know pocket of voters who were out there who didn't like either candidate and were kind of kind of wait until a little bit later on in the race. Or you know critically, I think this has kind of been something that's been a little overlooked. Maybe looking third party, there really isn't that you know Gary Johnson or Jill Stein that's going to be on the ballot this time around that could siphon some of those votes. And I think you guys touched on on Kanye West a little bit last week, but we don't, we don't need to get into him as any sort of <laughs> serious contender to even to even play play spoiler here. So that's another huge difference when you know Joe Biden already at this point in the race, you know a little less than 4 months to go before November, getting that majority of voters is is huge. So the question becomes, you know, maybe Trump can up his numbers a little bit from the, the you know, high 30s, low 40s. But how does he drive Joe Biden's numbers down? And at least as of right now, they haven't found an effective way to do that. I looked at some of those polls and the real clear politics average. Clinton led by 11 points in March of 2016. And but by May, Trump had actually taken the lead in those polls mm-hmm. and that it stayed within five or six points, including, you know, Trump grabbing a, a little bit of a lead in July again. In mid-October, and I think this is what the public that says don't trust the polls will point to, in mid-October, it was Clinton by eight. Uh, obviously, we know everything that happened mm-hmm. after mid-October with with the, the letter from James Comey. If you're looking for a bright side to these polls being similar to the polls that, that you saw in, in 2016, I think you would point to that, that as late as you know the middle of October, Clinton's real clear politics average lead was eight points. And obviously, she ended up winning by somewhere between two and three points in the popular vote, certainly not in the Electoral College right. vote. But the, Biden's lead to, to Adam's point has just been much more consistent. And growing. <laughs> and his ceiling has been higher. Yeah, absolutely. And there hasn't been the wild fluctuations that there were in 2016. A couple of just quick notes, you know, not, not that we want to get too nerdy here on the polls, but one- No, you know, we do. We, we you do, know, actually. Brian made a good point that we should separate the national from the state polls in that sense, where the national polls- we're a little closer to the final result where a lot of the state polls were, were, the results were kind of wildly off, partially because the race really did turn so quickly at the last minute. But two, you know, I think a lot of those pollsters also kind of took a look and, and tried to adjust what, what they did and changed up their methodology a little bit. So, you know, we'll see if that actually holds up in 2020. But I think, you know, that's another point that's worth noting is that I think these pollsters did try and, you know, improve their methods here so that they, we get a more accurate reading of the electorate this time around. Just one note, Jeffrey Skelly, an, an analyst for 538, just to back up what both Murph and Warner are talking about. Look at the, the polling average, the national polling average at this point in the race. Right now, they have Biden at nine points. Uh, at this time in 2016, they had Clinton up two points. And as Murph referenced in Real Clear Politics, there actually was a moment right after the Republican primary ended, I think, where Trump actually overtook Clinton. I would say, you know, the biggest difference to really kind of tie this conversation up Adam mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the fact that Trump is president right now and that the, the coronavirus pandemic, the public has really soured on his response to it. And that that above all is what's really dragging his numbers down. You know, Murph mentioned how in, in mid-October Hillary was up by eight. Right. Well, there was a reason that Hillary's 
number surge right then. It was in the, just in the immediate aftermath of the Access Hollywood tape being released. And I think that that is actually instructive why 2020 looks right now, why it's different than 2016. The Access Hollywood tape obviously had a, a big effect on how people saw Donald Trump. It was very damaging. But the truth is it was a personal scandal. His actions there did not affect directly everyone's life in America. Whereas with the coronavirus, I mean, everyone is, is, is being affected by this. And it's easy. Again, this has always been the holy grail for Democrats is there's a subset of voters who don't like Donald Trump's behavior and the chaos from the White House. But they were willing to give him a pass because, A, they didn't like Democrats all that much either. But B, that for all the chaos, look, the economy was good. Their own life was fine. I'm still going to vote for him, even if I don't like the tweets, in other words. Well, now there's a direct line between the chaos in the White House and how coronavirus has really not ended in any way in the country and how it is it still persists and compared to a lot of countries in Europe, for instance, it's still a big problem. Yeah, I think that's a big difference. And that gets probably to the second part of this conversation. But in 2016, things constantly moved the emails off of the, the news or the or they moved the Access Hollywood off of the news. There was constantly this rolling set of issues, rolling set of ability to change the topic. Is there anything that can move coronavirus off top of the news, top of websites, top of newscasts between now and, and November? And if it is something like George Floyd protests were able to do for a bit, you know, that rose to a level that also reflected poorly on, on the president at some way. And so the, the news that it would take to push coronavirus out of the news would have to be so big and probably so devastating to the nation, you know, a terrorist attack, a, a really large mass shooting. I'm trying to think of things that could push coronavirus off. It's hard to think of a positive event for the president, maybe short of a vaccine that would push coronavirus out of the news. Let's transition to a subject that I think we're already starting to, to discuss here. There has been, I, I think, a realization, and as we just mentioned, that for all the, the criticisms that Donald Trump has tried to, to use against Joe Biden, a lot of it isn't breaking through to the public. Not in the same way that we saw the email scandal of 2016 break through against Hillary Clinton or any number of criticisms against her. It doesn't seem to be working against Joe Biden. Here, here is my question, though, because I think this is this is a real debate, and I think I'm going to have a contrarian point of view. Is this more about Joe Biden's just invulnerability to these criticisms, that he is just a, a well-known and, generally speaking, well-liked politician people who are just not willing to believe some of the criticisms lobbed against him? Or is it more of a function of a, a country that is fixated on the pandemic and Trump's response to the pandemic? And, and also maybe a function of the Trump campaign's own disorganization. I would point out just this week, campaign manager Brad Parscale reportedly was removed as campaign manager in favor of longtime Republican strategist Bill Stepien. And in what appears to be an acknowledgement that the campaign is obviously not doing very well right now. So I'm going to I'm going to put the question to you first, Murph. What do you think is the the bigger determinative here? Is it, is it about Biden or is it really about everything that's going on that's attracted the public's interest? I'm going to take the opposite view of you. I, I think it's tied up with the Trump campaign. It's hard to make a case stick against somebody when coronavirus deaths and hospitalizations are spiking. It's hard to make this about Joe Biden's relationship with China when there are protests in, in every American city over police brutality and the treatment of African-Americans. I just think that the events of the day are driving the narrative much more than the campaigns are able to do that. And then I think where it gets to the Trump campaign is if you're going to make this a conversation about Joe Biden's mental acuity, 
you know, Donald Trump is probably not the best candidate to drive that. If, if it were Marco Rubio or Mitt Romney or someone younger and maybe, you know, less prone to gaffes of his own, then maybe that would be a much stronger line of attack. In some ways, the Trump campaign has lowered the bar on, on Biden's <laughs> uh, cognitive abilities so low that if he can simply get through a speech without without a major mess up, then it's seen as a victory. I, I just think I, I think it, it really is is the events of the day and then Trump's inability in part to stay on message, but in part the some of the message that he's trying to deliver just really aren't holding up. You know, there's plenty of, of Democrats that can pull out comments that Trump has said supportive of of China and its president. I mean, it's just it's really hard to to sustain a line of attack when Trump ha- has been all over the place on so many issues. So I, I think it's I, I think it's the Trump and 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 America's concentration. So we, we've talked a lot on the show about the sort of flailing nature of, of Trump's message that they can't seem to settle on one of the ones that they do seem to settle on, like a, a vigorous defense of Confederate statues just seems bizarre on its own terms. But Adam, I mean, is there something different between Hillary Clinton and, and Joe Biden? I mean, for one thing, Joe Biden doesn't have an ongoing FBI investigation into him right now. I mean, that seems notable. Absolutely. Right. And, and as we as we you know, were talking about previously, Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton and he, and he is uh, a better candidate than, than her, to be sure. I you know, tend to be in, in the in Brian's camp here of that. You know, it's more about, you know, that Joe Biden benefiting from the set of circumstances, right, that as, as we have been saying that this race really is shaping up as a referendum on the president's performance, you know, particularly his handling of coronavirus. And, you know, when you bring in race relations, police brutality, the struggling economy, uh, he's also getting negative marks on that. There just really isn't much room for anything else to break through from either candidate. But I will say that, you know, Joe Biden is in a better position to take advantage of this than most other Democrats and, and perhaps better than any other Democrat that ran for president in, in 2020. You know, you know, these past couple of cycles, we've kind of gotten used to thinking that having, you know, sort of decades of Washington experience is sort of seen as, as a negative for candidates running for office. But in a lot of ways, you know, that, that's actually made him a lot more difficult for Republicans to, to recast and, and to demonize. You know, he's long been seen as sort of a middle of the road Democrat. So it's tough to paint him as a sort of radical leftist that, you know, the Trump campaign is trying to do in some of their recent TV ads. Um, you know, swing voters, especially, you know, those white college educated suburbanites we've been talking so much about, see him as more of kind of this steadying presence in a time of upheaval. You know, I don't know if someone like Bernie Sanders would necessarily be able to, to appeal to those voters in the same way. And I think a, a telling sign of that is if you look at some of the, the TV ads that we've seen from Republicans that are vulnerable up for re-election this fall for, for House or for Senate, you don't see Joe mm-hmm. Biden you know, popping up in those ads, right? They're not trying to use him as a villain. They're going with Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, more progressive figures like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC. You know, they're, they're not trying to tie him to, to Joe Biden in, in any way. And that's not to say, you know, Joe Biden doesn't have his weaknesses. You know, certainly he's probably not as strong with, say, Latino voters or younger voters as, so, as some Democrats would want. He's prone to gaffes, as we've also discussed on this podcast. But it's just that he's been able to make up for that either with, you know, in terms of his coalition. He's done a lot better with older voters. He's done a lot better with college educated voters than a lot of Democrats anticipated to make up for other weaknesses. And any mistakes that he make, he makes sort of pale in comparison to the public's just overall view of how Trump is is handling, you know, any number of issues. So while that all matters at the margins, I do think, you know, it still ultimately comes down to to Trump and, you know, especially lately his handling of, of the COVID-19 crisis and the fact that he doesn't really have a clear plan for how to address that and isn't even really trying to, to message or even attack Biden on that issue specifically, you know, I think says a lot. And uh, instead, he's kind of trying to run this law and order campaign that so far has had kind of a very limited appeal outside of his core base 
at a time when he really needs to be expanding and make up for, for lost ground in, in these battleground states. McClatchy's Washington, D.C. Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com briefing. My biggest question is because when this race, this general election started, what I thought would be the toughest attack against Joe Biden is not that he was liberal. It's that he was a creature of the Washington mm -hmm. establishment, that he had been in Washington for decades. He hadn't been able to solve any of these problems that we're now talking about, whether that's income inequality or even racial strife. And that attack seems to have fallen flat to the degree that I, I barely see the Trump campaign or any of their allies even mention it anymore. Why do you think that is? That that to me is the single most that you wouldn't be able to paint Joe Biden as a socialist <laughs> after he literally just ran against Bernie Sanders in a primary and defeated him soundly. Like, oh, no kidding, guys. No kidding. But the Washington insider thing now, may, and, and maybe that will happen later, but I'm, I'm just surprised. Why do we think that is? Sure. And I'm not sure this gets exactly to, to the question you're asking, but I think Biden deserves credit whether this was luck or not. He has made his entire campaign about the soul of America, restoring the soul of America. And as events just keep happening, you know, the, the battle for the soul of America keeps resonating in issue after issue after issue, whether that's luck that he stumbled upon that or, or precision and, and foresight by his campaign. The issue that he chose to sort of build his entire campaign around seems to, seems to have resonated. And I think this gets to Adam's point and, and to your question. You know, Donald Trump is the incumbent president. It's hard for him to say Joe Biden didn't solve these problems when Donald Trump himself is the president and, you know, has not solved police brutality, has not solved income inequality. In fact, those issues seem to have gotten worse in the last four years. I think it's a really fine line for Trump to walk and say Biden never solved these problems when the easy retort from Biden is they've gotten worse since you've become president. You know, we, we were making progress in these areas. I mean, the easy way to test this question, right, is to, to imagine a hypothetical where Biden weren't the nominee and would the candidate be doing as well as Joe Biden is right now, as Adam referenced earlier, up 10 or more points in some national polls. I mean, do we think that if Bernie Sanders were the nominee, he wouldn't be winning this race against Donald Trump? This is just sort of, you know, speculation, but I, I would guess that he would be winning, but I'm not sure if he'd be winning by, by as much. Mm -hmm. And to give Joe Biden credit, you know, he has you know, done a, a really effective job in sort of these past few months since the primary has wrapped up of one, you know, sort of dealing with his issues on the left. Right. We don't you don't hear kind of the, the Bernie or bus crowd as much in 2020 as you did four years ago with Hillary Clinton. And he's really worked closely with with Bernie Sanders and, and his you know, kind of former campaign aides to, to kind of work together on, on some policy platforms, uh, some of which came out last week. You know, there hasn't been a whole lot of dissension on the left for Joe Biden. And he's been able to do that while bringing in kind of the more moderate, independent, if, if not even Republican leaning, you know, suburban voters, college educated voters uh, into the fold as well. So the fact that he's been able to sort of bring that coalition together, I don't know, you know, who else could have really done that, right? You know, Bernie Sanders, maybe he'd be a little bit stronger with, with some progressives, but then a little bit weaker. Uh, on the other side. Uh, but again, I do think it just comes down to, to the fundamentals would favor you know, pretty much any Democrat right now, including a, a, a Democratic socialist like, like Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I will say I think Democrats, well, well, two points. I think that the Trump campaign at some point is, is going to get a little more organized and maybe the new campaign manager can help that and that they can become a little bit more disciplined about driving a singular message against Joe Biden. And then at some point, the public will actually 
listen to that. I, you know, I understand that the coronavirus doesn't show any sign of, of waning here. And so maybe that carries us through the election. But in talking with a lot of Democrats, too, I think there is an expectation that at some point the quote unquote Death Star becomes operational and that there's going to be a moment where they're able to land some punches on Joe Biden. And we'll have to see how he reacts then. The other part of it is I think any Democrat who thinks that if Joe Biden does win this race and becomes president, that he somehow this this sort of invulnerability that he seems to have is going to carry over is probably fooling themselves. Um, at, at some point, yes. <laughs> uh, the Republican machine is going to, as, as it always does, find some vulnerability or some weaknesses in, in the armor that it can exploit, at least within sort of the conservative ecosystem. And then that bleeds into a lot of independents and more moderate voters. So, I, I you know, I, I think we're actually in an agreement that this is mostly a function of the environment in the Trump campaign rather than Biden himself. But we'll we'll have to see. OK, we are now going to go to what is my favorite segment every week where Adam and Brian are going to tell me something I don't know, something fresh, new or original out of their reporter's notebook. Murph, you're up first. Well, I have two things. One is that Time is running out. I mean, we, we've had this long discussion about the election. In North Carolina, absentee mail-in ballots go out on September 4th, a full two months before the election. You can return your ballot as soon as you get it. So when we talk about an October surprise, given the number of people that are probably going to be voting absentee by mail, there's not as much vote that's going to be left to, to be determined by an October surprise. The other thing is that we've heard a lot about year of the woman in many years in, in political cycles. Six women have served in the U.S. House of Representatives from North Carolina out of the 333 people that have, have held that job. Currently, there are two women in the North Carolina delegation. That number is likely to jump to four in 2021 because of redistricting. And there's a possibility of even a fifth uh, in Richard Hudson's district. Patricia Timmons Goodson has raised a lot of money in that district. So that's that's something to watch as we get uh, closer to the election. You know, how many women do win these races? I think currently there are 101 women in the in the U.S. House. I expect that number to be much higher come 2021. Okay, Adam, what do you got? Another uh, reason why 2020 is not like 2016 is that uh, the Democrats are not taking the Midwest for granted in the same way they did four years ago. Uh, Dave Katniss had a, had a good story up this week, got some data from the firm Advertising Analytics, sort of comparing the, the ad spending numbers and sort of the, the core battleground states in 2020 versus 2016. And, and up to this point, uh, Democrats have spent six times as much money on TV ads in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, as they did at this point in, in 2016. So, you know, for all this talk that, you know, that we've talked about on this podcast that we've written about that, that you may see out there about Democrats potentially expanding the map, you know, a lot of Democrats are, are worried and say, well, you know, let's make sure we lock down, you know, kind of the, the states we need first before we start going into states like Texas or Georgia or Iowa or Ohio. But and the ad spending numbers, you know, back up that that's that's where their their focus still is that, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, they know that they need to wrap up those states first to get to 270 before they start thinking about expanding the map elsewhere. Smart point as always, Adam. And actually, my point kind of dovetails with that, because as you said, and as Dave wrote, you're absolutely right that the Biden campaign and their super PAC allies have focused almost exclusively on the core six states. But one, one caveat, one tidbit that I picked up talking with Biden officials this week should be noted that they're running ads on national cable. 
Now, a lot of these ads are obviously directed at those voters in those same six states, right? Because a lot of voters in North Carolina or Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, they watch cable news. And as it turns out, the data says a lot of them are persuadable voters or at least some significant chunk of them are. However, as a Biden official pointed out to me, they also have their eye on that buy because it does reach voters in other states, in places like Ohio, in places like Texas even. And Look, I think Democrats have been very cautious, haunted by the memory of 2016, but it was proof to me that even officials within the Biden campaign are cognizant of the fact that they might have an opportunity to expand the map, expand it beyond those top six core battleground states, which would mean a lot, not just for the presidential race, but also for potentially some Senate races in places like Georgia or even Texas or Iowa. So just something to keep in mind, the Biden campaign actually is running ads that reach voters in in other states. They're not doing it on broadcast TV, which is always ultimately the gold standard even now, but just just something to keep in mind. Okay, Adam and Brian, terrific job as always. Very much enjoy having you both on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Alex. It was terrific to be here. Yeah, good good to be on with you both. Okay, I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Cobert. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.